0: Amen. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. (coughs) Excuse me. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Um, We are in the middle of a series going through the Gospel of of Matthew, and if you are familiar with the Bible, you know that Matthew has 28 chapters, so it's going to take us a while to get through it. Uh, So to alleviate some of that, what we've done is we've broken it up into a number of what I would call mini-series, if you want to put it that way. Uh, we've just spent 10 weeks leading into Easter looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we start in Matthew chapter 8, and for the next 16 weeks or so, probably through the majority of the summer, we're going to be taking a look at the passages in the Gospel of Matthew that really deal with what it means to follow Jesus as his disciples. That Jesus, what Carter said just a minute ago, that Jesus really does expect and intend that we would do the things he tells us to do. That we would hear his words and put them into practice. So, we're going to be coming today out of... Matthew chapter 8, actually beginning at the very end of Matthew 7, which wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, and then with some of these stories that are just great stories of our faith in, in Matthew chapter 8. So it's a, long, it's a long reading, forgive me for that, but I just wanted you to get the scope of, of what Jesus is doing. And so let's read it together as we come to the scripture. Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and then 8, 1 through 27. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me, if you follow along. There's also Bibles in the pews for you if you'd like that. And when Jesus finished these sayings, again, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, And he comes, to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. I wonder if Peter was grateful for that. Never, never mind. Just tried to throw in some humor. Forget it. Sacrilegious anyway. We'll keep reading the scriptures. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side and the scribe, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head another of the disciples said to him lord Let me first go and bury my father Jesus said to him follow me and Leave the dead to bury their own dead And when he got into the boat his disciples followed him and behold there arose a great storm on the sea it Said that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep and when and they went and they woke him saying save us Lord, we are perishing And he said to them. Why are you? Why are you afraid? Why are you so afraid? Oh, you have little faith And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? This is God's word. The part about the mother-in-law was not God's word. My little interjection. But everything else, this is God's word. Now,
1: uh, Matthew has been
0: presenting Jesus to us as the long-awaited king. You might remember this. The son of David, right? Right? Who would come and save his people and when jesus shows up we read in this gospel He begins to teach and preach that the kingdom of god is near And to heal people and to cast out demons and to raise people up Um, He's bringing the kingdom of heaven near that's what's happening He's putting the reality of the kingdom on display for all who see it Um, So for the last couple of months, we've been walking through the sermon on the mount, which is jesus's vision of For what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. His unique vision for human community, right? The eternal life made available through him right now to all who repent and believe. But we read here in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7, way up at the front of your page there, that when he finishes teaching, they begin to marvel at his authority. They marvel because he teaches with authority. They've never heard stuff like this. It evoked something in them. They were astonished, Matthew says, it, it, it affected them deeply because it was so powerful, so brilliant, so insightful, so searching, so wise. He spoke with authority. Now, Jesus' authority is a very important theme for Matthew. In chapters 8 and 9, if you read the Gospel, Matthew groups together a, a series of stories that further illustrate Jesus' authority. Now, from reading the other Gospels, we know that... The, that That these stories that Jesus has grouped together here are not chronological, they're not in chronological sequence. And so Matthew has a greater concern than chronology at this point. He he has a theological concern. He's put them together thematically to help us meditate and wrestle with Jesus' authority and the implications of his authority. He wants us to see that Jesus is indeed a king. He's the king. And when you meet a king, there's only one thing for you to do, and that is to bow your knee and to obey him. Matthew's more concerned with any other, than any other gospel writer with the, the, the teachings of Jesus. He wants us to listen to Jesus and do what he tells us to do. We saw that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There's five major discourses of teaching in Matthew that come from Jesus' lips. He wants us to become Jesus' disciples, to live with him in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next few months. And the bulk of the gospels, this gospel's... Um, content is just designed to ask this question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to hear his words and to do them? So this morning, I want us to just to meditate on three words, and they're the three words that are printed for you in your outline. If you have that with you, you'll see it there. Just three words that I want us to just to talk about for a few minutes. First, authority. What sort of man is this, they say? What does it mean that Jesus has authority? Secondly, discipleship. And that word is just that the response to who Jesus is revealed to be here. And then thirdly, faith, which is the energy source for discipleship. So authority, discipleship, and faith. Let's just talk about those three things for a few minutes this morning, beginning right there with this idea of authority. Okay? Let's define authority. Uh, the word authority in the Greek is a, a word that, that's escusia. It really it's a word that describes kingly authority and power and might. Uh, it's, it's a there's a royal connotation to it. And, and really it means, if I could just sum it all up, this is the way I would say it, it really means two things. First, a person who has authority, or a person with authority has the right to do whatever they want to do. Their will is not to be questioned, it's not to be bargained with, it's not to be objected to or argued with, their will is to be obeyed. They have the right to do whatever it is they want to do. And then secondly, the reason they have the right to do Whatever it is they want to do is because they have the power and the resources to accomplish all that they determine and desire and decree. So they have the right to do whatever they want to do because they have the power to do whatever needs to be done to maintain their right to do whatever it is that they want to do. That's what this idea of authority is. So maybe the best description is the one that Centurion gives in verse 9 of chapter 8. If you see there, he says, I'm a man with under authority and with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What happens to a servant that is told by their master, do this, and they don't do it? What happens to a soldier? I've never been in the military. I respect those guys immensely because of their discipline. But what happens to a soldier whose commanding officer says, do this, and they say, you know what, I don't think that's a good plan? I mean... You know, and, and so this guy understands something to be true of Jesus. The, the, this description of authority, for someone to have authority over you, here's how I would boil it down. For, for someone to claim to have authority means that they get to tell you what to do and you don't have the right to tell them what to do. They have every right to tell you what to do. You have no right to tell them what to do. That's what it means to have authority. So let me ask you a question. Who has authority over you? I mean, think through your relationships. Where, where is this authority thing flushing itself out in your life? And how do you relate to that person? Just to get at our heart attitude. Teenagers, how joyful are you in your obedience to your parents? The parents are grunt. I heard a grunt from a parent or two. <laughs> do you thank God for your parents and for their authority? Now, adults, let me pick on you. How much complaining are you going to do on Thursday when you mail your check to the IRS? Right? What's your attitude like when you get pulled over for a speeding ticket? How critical are you of the president and the legislature versus how much time do you spend praying for them? Which, by the way, is what we're commanded in the Bible to do. How do you treat your boss at work? Here's a great one. This is what... How do you you treat, you know, your kid's baseball coach or soccer coach? I mean, I had a parent go off on me this week because I dropped his kid from second to eighth in the lineup. Really? Oh, yeah. Jonathan's like, you're serious? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, how how are we wrestling through these things? Uh, we were made to live under authority that's that's the clear teaching of the scripture uh when adam and eve were put in the garden they, were, they there was a tree put there with them called the tree of the knowledge of the good of good and evil and they were prohibited from eating of that tree and the temptation of satan in the garden was eat so that you'll be like god and you'll know right and wrong in other words satan tempted adam and eve in that moment you won't need god you'll be able to decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong and What that means is is that at the very beginning, Adam and Eve were set up to where they would live completely dependent under the authority, joyfully living under the authority of God who defined for them what is right and what is wrong and what they could and could not do. So sin is being revealed there as a desire to live with no authority, to be our own master, to decide for ourselves between right and wrong, to not be accountable to anybody else other than ourselves. And I just want to say we're living in a crisis in our culture over this issue an absolute crisis in our culture over this issue and I have two illustrations of that one that's subtle and somewhat humorous although I'm obviously not funny because nobody laughs when I try to make jokes and secondly second one that is that is not so subtle and the first one is just this I don't know if you if you have kids in the house you probably have seen it on TV but there's there's a show I think it's on Nickelodeon I don't even know what channel it's on but this show Icarly anybody with me Icarly there you go teenagers are on their heads and even my you know my younger ones but it's a show about a teenage girl and her older brother who's her guardian and i um i've seen the show a few times i admit because my kids asked if they could watch it and so i watched it with them and, and just to make you know to see and i was really struck by a couple of things and the first was and this is off topic but i just i couldn't pass up the opportunity um the first was there's absolutely no men no men now there are boys Right? They're, they're, all the male roles are just silly, or they're complete wimps, or even worse, they're exaggeratedly effeminate. There's no men. And and secondly, even worse than that, there's no parents. In the whole show. I mean, Carly, Carly's brother, who's supposed to be her guard, guardian, acts like a 13-year-old boy. He's irresponsible. I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm on a tirade, but I don't mean to be on a tirade. I mean, it's, you know, please don't. I mean, just think through this with me for a minute, okay? I mean, I, I, we wa- I mean, the show's on in our house on occasion, but I sit and watch it with my kids. But it's just amazing to me, this, this guy who is this, this little girl's guardian. he never tells her no, he never corrects her, and then there's the one parent in the whole show, and if you've seen the show, you know this, right? There's the one parent, Freddie's mom. See, I even know the character's names. Uh, and she's the only parent in the whole show, and, she, and she's made to look like a complete idiot. I mean, she's, she's made fun of, they laugh at her behind her back, they just, you know, just stupid. And and really, really, in a sense, I, I, as a parent, I watch it and I think, holy cow, the message is parents are stupid and irrelevant and all they do is keep you from having fun. And man, wouldn't it be great to be like that where there are no parents around and you could do whatever you want to do all the time? Wow, that's the good life. I mean, it's just subtle, subtle ways that authority gets really attacked in our culture i have nothing against the show i just think it's an interesting it's just an interesting cultural dynamic but a second one that's not so subtle we were talking about this in our in our preaching meeting this week i don't know if you're familiar with the virginia state seal which is on the flag but on the virginia state seal we were just meditating on this uh the the seal and i wish i had a picture of it to put up there but i don't but on the seal there's a woman who is representing virginia standing with her heel on the chest of a figure that is obviously a king. And then the phrase, Latin phrase, six Simper tyrannis is written, and that phrase is translated thus always to tyrants. And we were just meditating on how that is just built into the DNA of us as a people in this culture of if you try to tell me what to do, if you dare to try to rule over me, I'm going to put my foot on you and beat you down. And, and, and that's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful aspect of that. It's what founded our country, but, it, but be careful because, man, there's some really serious spiritual implications in all that stuff. And what the Scriptures are wanting us to see is that where our hearts really hate the authority in our lives, it is really a hatred of God because all earthly authorities are just expressions of His authority. And we have to deal with this. I mean, we have to deal with this. As much as we hate the government budding into our lives to make us pay taxes, what Matthew is trying to help us see is that Jesus is far more intrusive than any other authority, and the consequences of disobeying him are far more devastating. I mean, Jesus, look at this, Jesus touches the leper there in that story, but he doesn't get his leprosy, the leper gets healed. I mean, Jesus, with the centurion, speaks a word from a distance, and the centurion's servant is healed. He speaks to demons, and the demons obey him. He stands up in the front of a boat in the middle of a storm and rebukes the winds and the waves, and the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, that's how powerful his word is. That's how much authority he has. I mean, he's the one who created all things with the power of his word, and it is he who sustains and governs all things with that same power. Every earthly authority is just an extension of his authority. And Matthew wants us to see this. He wants us to wrestle with the reality that Jesus is the king of the universe. He is the most high God. Daniel 4, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We owe him every breath we breathe. He deserves our loyalty and, and obedience and joyful submission. And the Bible's clear that one day we will stand before him to be judged for every protest our hearts make against his rule, every accusation, every time we say to him, What have you done? And part of his Jesus' work as our king, part of his work to save us, as the old confessions of faith says, is that he will subdue our hearts to himself. Is he subduing you to himself? If not, then just like Adam and Eve who rebelled against him in the garden and set themselves up as kings at the beginning of the human race and were cast out, Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 there that at the end of time, those who still insist on rebellion on the great day that we talked about last week will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's a king. Whose word is to be obeyed. So, how do you relate to the King of the universe? <laughs> Parents, what do you expect from your kids? Bosses, what do you expect from your employees? How do you relate? Think, how do you relate to Jesus who has all authority and power in heaven and earth? There's only one thing you do you obey him. And that's exactly what he expects. And it's what Matthew calls us to here. So, as we think about authority, let's go to the second point there and think about the, the response to that authority then is a life of discipleship. It, this, is, this is what makes sense of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to is that we become his disciples. Now, let's get the terminology straight here. And we're going to really be focusing in on this middle part, verses 18 through 22 here. So, hang out there in verses 18 through 22 with me while we go through this, okay? Okay. Um, When the man comes to Jesus there, in verse 19, let's get get some terminology together, okay? He calls him, you'll notice, teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. A better translation would be master. It's a Greek word, interestingly enough, that referred to a stage director in the ancient Greek theater. I mean, that's what that word is, didaskalos. It's an interesting metaphor, I was thinking. You know, a stage director is the one who originally has a vision for the production. He gets in his mind what he wants it to be. He picks the cast, assigns everybody the parts they're going to play. He schedules rehearsals. And during the rehearsals, he directs the actors. He corrects them when they do something wrong. He gives them instruction. He models for them what he wants them to do. And then when everybody's ready, he gets out of the way and he lets them do their thing. Jesus says... Part of what we have to understand is he is the didaskalos. He came into the world with a very specific agenda to bring the kingdom of God near. And he knows what that looks like. He is the one that has the vision for, commun- for the communal life of his church. He knows what it takes to live that way. He knows how to do it. He did it. He's the master. And that makes us his students, his apprentices, his followers, his disciples, his Those who follow after him is what we're told here. And so the expectation that we find here in these verses is, is that our life will begin to mimic his. That he really intends for us to be with him, to learn from him how to live like him. Let me say that again. He really does intend for us to be with him. To learn from him how to live like him. Theologically, of course, Romans 8 says that those God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that He might be the firstborn of many brethren. Whatever God's doing in your life, in other words, whatever circumstances He's put you through, He has one big goal in mind, and that is to make you like Jesus so that you image Him. And one of the core values of our church that we've said from the very beginning is that discipleship is not optional. I mean, we believe that. We believe that if we're going to really give ourselves over to Jesus to be His followers and those who believe in Him, we're going to have to become his disciples. And Dallas Willard has this great statement. He says, Disciples of Jesus, or excuse me, the disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of transportation in the kingdom of God. But make no mistake, and here's what we really have to wrestle with. This is a tall order. There's a cost that's involved because Jesus' mission is much different than what most people expect. In Daniel 7, in our call to worship, we saw the Son of Man as the exalted King with all authority and power and dominion. Did you catch that? But Jesus says here in verse 20 that this Son of Man from Daniel 7 has nowhere to lay his head. Those are two very different accounts of reality. So you have to know what you're getting yourself into. You have to count the cost. You have to search your hearts and your motives and really determine your willingness to follow because he means... He means for you to take up your cross and follow him. To follow him means Golgotha and Gethsemane and the grave for you too. And so we have to just... I want to make two statements about discipleship and then we're going to spend the next 16 weeks really dealing with this. But two statements about what it means to follow him from these verses, verses 18 through 22. Uh, and, And I'm going to try to explain these as best I can. But the first is to follow him means you forfeit your right to privacy and leisure. You forfeit your right to privacy and leisure. The first man comes... If you see that there, and says, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus senses that he doesn't quite yet understand the implications of the commitment that he's offering to make. And so he says, verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the, nest have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now remember, Jesus is an itinerant. He's traveling from place to place. He's constantly going into people's homes and enjoying the hospitality of other, hospitality of others. But if you travel, if you're a businessman or if you've ever done this, you know that no matter how good the food might be or how nice the hotel room or how hospitable the host, it's not the same as home. Right? You with me? Jesus is saying, I don't have a home. He left his home because the mission required it. And the implication is is that if we follow him, we'll all leave our homes too. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we need to sell our houses and buy 1969 Volkswagen buses and paint rainbows and peace signs on them and tour the country telling people about Jesus. See, another attempt at humor. Nobody laughed. See that? Damn. Just got to stop. Jonathan, stop me, please. Thank you. Right? I mean, because, and I say that because it's, that's, that sounds ridiculous. And yet, you know, that's kind of where we go with these things. Of course not. I hope not. Those things are hideous. Right? But there are very real practical implications. The thing about a home, I was thinking, is it's a place where you can get away from all the busyness and the distractions and the interruptions and just rest, right? It's a refuge. You can shut the doors and unplug the phone and run around in your underwear if you want to. Because it's home. I don't do that. But you could. Right? It's home. You're home. Home is your private space where things are exactly the way you want them to be. But Jesus, Jesus is saying he didn't have a home. He didn't have a retreat. He didn't have a place to go to get away from the people. He didn't have a place where he could just rest. It was constant activity. And if you read the Gospels, he's always trying to pull back from the crowds, but he can't ever seem to do it. Because there are always people who need to be healed. There are always sermons that needed to be preached. People were always intruding into his privacy. The only rest and solitude he could ever really find was to spend all night in prayer with his father. Jesus says if you follow him your life's going to feel like that too That the demands of love will often trump your right to privacy and your pursuit of leisure But there's a second statement he makes and that is that not only do you forfeit your right to privacy and leisure But you also forfeit your family and community identity See a second man comes to jesus and he asks if he can first go and bury his father. Do you see that? In verse 21 And then come follow And most commentators and scholars agree that this doesn't mean his father has died or even that he's sick and might die soon. It was very understood in Middle Eastern culture that there was a loyalty that the son had to the father. Kenneth Bailey, an author and scholar who lived in the Middle East for years and did research, um, calls this a traditional idiom that refers to the duty of the son to remain home and care for the parents until they are laid to rest. There would have been great cultural pressures for this man to fulfill his obligation to his parents. But Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to become his follower, you have to forfeit your family identity. You have to put aside every other allegiance, even the demands of those you hold most dear, your parents and your kids and close relatives and follow him. His voice has to become the defining reality of your life. So are you beginning to get a sense of just how radical the demands of discipleship to Jesus really are? Well, get out there, you know. Go get busy. Let's do it. Let's pray, right? I mean, no. we We can't end there. I mean, it can't end there because the power for discipleship is not found in our will going out and charging us, you know, taking water pistols and charging the gates of hell. The power source for discipleship is faith. And that means the greatest obstacle to discipleship is unbelief. And Matthew has a lot to say about this. And so we need to finish this morning by just wrapping up our time, talking about faith and what it means for us to grow in our faith to Jesus Christ more and more and more. So let's take just a couple minutes and talk about faith. And let me start with an illustration of what this feels like so you can see how this begins to work itself out in your life. Okay? Um, In C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, a girl... And C.S. Lewis wrote, part of the Chronicles of Narnia was one of the books, A Silver Chair. And in that book, a girl named Jill, who is from our world, has stumbled into Narnia, and she's extremely thirsty. She comes upon a stream, but a lion, Aslan, is sitting by the stream, and she's terrified. The lion tells her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill hesitates. Now, let let me go through the conversation as it happens. Are you thirsty, the lion said. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' Jill said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come?' Jill said. "'I make no promise,' said the lion.' Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat, girls, she asked. (laughs) I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream, then there is no other streams at the line. I mean, do you, hear, do you hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? Man, that is so profound. I mean, when I describe the demands of discipleship to you, it probably feels to some of you as threatening as if you were to come upon a lion by a stream. And to say yes to him means to give up control of your life. It means saying yes to suffering and sacrifice, having to change your standard of living... Then I mean, the only way you'll ever be able to do that is if you're convinced he's for you. Sure, the demands are great. But the goal is not to make you miserable or to take away all your fun. Jesus is trying to teach you how to really live. He's trying to lead you to the water that can really quench your thirst. And you have to deal with him to get there. You see, there's an explicit, or excuse me, an implicit accusation in a number of the stories Matthew groups together here in chapter 8. For example, look, look a couple things with me really quick. In the story of the leper, the man is completely convinced Jesus is able to heal him. But if you see there verse 2, but he's not sure he's willing. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 2. He knows enough about Jesus to know that he has the power to heal him. But he doesn't know his heart. He imagines that Jesus will be as reluctant as everyone else he's ever met to pay him attention. He can't imagine that Jesus would really desire to do this for him. And again, in verse um, 23 and 20, through 27 in chapter 8, in the story of the storm... Jesus is asleep in the boat when the winds and the waves begin to rage and the disciples go and wake him up. And in Mark's account, here's what they say to him when they wake him up. They say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I mean, do you hear that? They don't know he's for them. They're completely ignorant of his heart. They say, don't you care? The waves are about to consume us. Don't you care? You see, that's what we have to confront as we contemplate the call to discipleship. It's what C.S. Lewis gets at earlier in the Chronicles of Narnia's books when he describes how Lucy reacts when she discovers that, that Aslan is a lion. She asks Mr. Beaver, do you remember this? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver utters the famous line, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I mean, this is what we have to confront with every authority structure in our life, under the authority of our parents, under the authority of our government, whatever it might be. Authority isn't safe. It th- threatens to take away our freedoms and our rights. But what if it's good? What if it's good? That's why we have such a hard time believing. That's what's so hard to believe. We don't believe it's good. We don't believe it's God-ordained. We don't believe God's put it there to bless us. Like the leper and the disciples, there are accusations that our hearts make against Him that keep us from following Him. He's a killjoy. He's a control freak. We don't know He's for us. We're pretty sure He's not safe but we don't at all believe that he's good. And if we're ever going to follow him faithfully, we have to not only be convinced of his power and authority, but we also have to be convinced that he's for us, that he loves us, and that he wants to do us good. And Matthew helps us with that, and this is the last thing I have to say. In verse 17, if you see right there in the middle of the passage, where he reflects on Jesus' healing, all who are sick, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that's a quote from Isaiah 53 which is a very famous passage in Isaiah that describes Jesus' death on the cross, and I'll quote some of it to you. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And here's how you know that he's good. Jesus has all authority. He's the son of man we read about in Daniel 7, who is the exalted king of heaven and earth, and yet he did not use his authority the way other kings do. This king didn't didn't live in a palace. He had nowhere to lay his head. And in order for us to be healed, he had to be struck down. In order to make us whole, he had to be crushed, and he was. And if you ever doubt his love for you, if you're ever tempted to doubt his love, just consider all that it cost him to love you. That's where the energy for obedience comes from. When you see Jesus willingly laying aside his power and authority and going to the cross because of his love for you. See, that's why you don't have to be afraid to follow him. No matter what he might ask you to do, no matter what he might ask you to give up or go without, he's not trying to take away your joy, he's trying to help you find it. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and that shouldn't make us afraid, because he promises in all that he does, he's for us, he's loving us, he promises to be with us in Matthew 28 until he comes again. right? Is he safe? Of course not. But he's good. Let's pray right that right there this morning. Let's just pray because we need to believe that, Father. It is the it is the great struggle of our life to live with great faith. And I think about Jesus, you rebuking your disciples on the lake with, when the storm comes up of their little faith that we really do like the leper. We we, we just have no concept of the magnitude of your love for us, and it just keeps us crippled in our obedience. And so I pray, um, as we sing right now, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days, I will lift up my voice to you, that you are the one that we have been looking for all of our lives, that you are the stream that can quench our thirst. There is no other stream. So subdue our hearts to yourself with a vision of your power and your authority, but not only a vision of your power and authority, but, it, but your, a vision of your sacrificial love. And may that subdue so our hearts, that we might answer the call to follow you, and that it might be to your glory. And we pray in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really looking forward to the next few weeks together. really wrestling through what it means for us to be people who hear Jesus' words and obey them, because uh, he is the one who has all authority. He has every right to tell us what to do. And we have none to tell him what he must do. And so, uh, is, is he safe? Of course not. Because he stood on the mountain with his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. Therefore go. But is he good? Yes. Because as he sent them, he said, And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if your faith is in Jesus Christ... Then here's the promise of the benediction that though the one who speaks these words over you has a claim on every breath you breathe and every decision you make, um, he is for you and is calling you to come to the river to drink from the water that can truly satisfy your thirst. He is a father to you who cares for you and loves you. He is the one who desires to bless you. So as I raise my hands, see in my hands the hands of Jesus raised to bless you and hear his voice in the benediction promising to be with you, uh, and to go with you. So may you receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.